Well, praise the Lord. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Ruth. I'll call it that. From the Old Testament. It's right before... Kaboom! Thank you. Right before <clears throat> First Samuel, right after Judges. And we're going to get through the entire book today. So for those of you who love a feeling of accomplishment, you're welcome. We'll get through the entire thing. And um, there we go. Father, would you just help us? God, I pray that your spirit would come and be amongst us. And Lord, I just love this prayer from Ephesians. Lord, would your spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God come and be amongst us. Open up our eyes to see Jesus, to understand your word, and to know who we are in the story of God for your glory. And amen. All right, let's read. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah, which is right up there, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, which is down there. He and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." So we're going to work through Ruth, and Ruth really fortunately is broken up into about four sections, or four acts, or four important scenes. And by the mercies of God, they correspond pretty much to the four chapters of Ruth. So the Bible was not written with chapters and verses in it. It existed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, without any verses or chapters, and then somebody gave us chapters and verses. And sometimes the chapter breaks are really helpful. Um, and they're at a good spot. Sometimes the chapter breaks are at the worst and most terrible spots ever, and so you can kind of see later translators try to fix that by like burying the new chapter in the middle of a paragraph that they try to fix. But the chapters and verses are pretty much just there for like scholars and people who want to talk about the Bible being able to help other people know what they're talking about by saying, let's all go to chapter one instead of let's all go to that place in Ruth, you know, where it says something about there being a famine, and if you know about it, you know it, and if you don't, you don't. So Ruth is broken up into four major sections. And I just want to start by quickly running through these four sections and making some comments. And then we'll end by um, trying to hear what God wants the church to hear through this book. So we start in the time of the judges. And if you remember, the time of the judges are after Joshua has led the people of God into the promised land. And they've had a relatively good success in taking the promised land, but they also had some significant failures. And so Joshua dies, and then the people of God spend the next few hundred years, I think it is, um, having these cycles of doing okay, but then falling into idolatry. And then God punishes them, and then they cry out, and then the judge comes along and rescues them, and they do okay for a little bit, and then they fall back into idolatry. And as the years went on, the judges were less and less great, and the freedom they got from that judge was less and less free. And over time, they just became more and more like the pagan people around them and less and less like the people of God ought to be. And this is when this story takes place. And it begins by saying there's been a famine in the land, which probably means that they're in some kind of time of judgment because God's Old Testament word said, hey, when you guys disobey me, when you go and worship other idols, I'm actually going to take away the food that I usually give you. And it's a sign that you're under judgment. It's time to repent. And interestingly, what Elimelech decides to do is to take his family to another country, to actually leave the promised land and to hoof it um, either north or south. I don't know what the best route would have been, but to hoof it over to Moab and try to, um, <coughs> excuse me, I have a slight cold, and so I'm going to try to let it um, not get in the way of things too much, but there you go. And so they try to escape the famine by going to another country. And I don't know for sure, but somebody suggested before that a possible reason they might have wanted to do that is because of having read their Old Testaments a few times. So if you are like these people and you heard the stories of Abraham and you heard the stories of Genesis and 
You believe that you are part of the people of God and physical descendants from Abraham and the 12 tribes of Israel. Then when a famine came along, you might think to yourselves, well, what did my forefathers do when there was a famine in the land? And you might remember that often what Abraham did was he would actually leave the promised land and go to some other city or some other country, and then usually his wife would get stolen. And then God would get his wife back, and then God would heap riches in the forms of like servants and cattle and sometimes gold and silver over them. And so the patriarchs would often leave the promised land, have a bunch of trouble, but then go back to the promised land way richer than they were when things first started. And the biggest story of that would have been like the, um, the Exodus, where the people of God, during a worldwide famine, went and joined Joseph in Egypt, where he was taking care of the world with his grain. And though they had some troubles with the slavery and the killings of the babies and stuff, they actually left Egypt, having the Egyptians throwing all their treasures on them. And they said, get out of here and take our gold, and get out of here and take all our stuff, and get out of here. So that the Israelites left Egypt stinking rich. So rich, in fact, that they could build the tabernacle, which involved making a ton of stuff out of solid gold, and all these like tents out of being made out of like seal skins, like wherever you find that, and all these rich purple cloths. And they actually took like a long time to take all this wealth and turn it into the tabernacle of God. And that wasn't even all they had. That was what they just freely gave. All these like furnishings out of gold and these pots out of gold. And so maybe if you're a Limelech, you think, well, here's a famine. I remember some stories about famines. This is what you do. You go to another country, you endure it, and you go home loaded. But that's not at all how it worked out. Elimelech took his wife and his two sons and they went to Moab. And the first thing that happened was that Elimelech died. And then probably Naomi sitting there with her two sons is thinking, wasn't expecting that. Um, Okay, we got to work on the family here. We need to work on keeping the family going so my sons now need to get married. And so um, found her sons, some Moabite wives, which was not what you were supposed to do. You weren't supposed to be marrying outside of the faith. You weren't supposed to be marrying outside of Israel, but that kind of meant outside of the faith. Israel was supposed to be true worshipers and the pagan nations around not true worshipers. So this is really questionable, even that she did that. And then by the time 10 years have elapsed after these two marriages, they've had no children and then her sons die. So that it's just Naomi and her, Naomi the widow and her two widowed daughters-in-laws. Things were not going according to their hope. Um, I, I, I sit here thinking, I bet when Naomi went back home, there were other people her, her age who didn't have her husband and her two sons die during the famine. So this is like worse than if she had just stayed there, probably. So then they decide it's time to go home. So Naomi says, um, they've heard that God has visited Bethlehem. He's starting to provide crops again, so they're going to go home. And on the way there, Naomi starts trying to convince her daughter-in-laws not to come with him. And I'll actually read this. It says, verse 8, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant you to find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you and to your people. So Naomi tries again to get rid of them. says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore remain, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter, excuse me, for me, to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if also if anything but death separates me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So you can just imagine that as Naomi is leaving Moab and going back home, she's just thinking about all of her loss. So she went out with a husband and two sons, and now she's going back home, leaving their graves behind, which would be especially bitter. Because these people were so connected to their land in the promised land that this is what you wanted to do. You wanted to be buried in the promised land. This is your home. This is where you want to be. And for Joseph, you might remember, it was so important to be buried in the promised land that even when he died in Egypt, he said, when you guys go back home, make sure to bring my bones with you. Because I want to be buried in God's promised land. And here is uh, Naomi going home and leaving behind the graves of her family. And she'll never see them again. It's like a 75-mile walk. And you don't just walk 75 miles back in the ancient Near East, especially if you're a broke widow. Okay, this never happens. So she is saying goodbye to the bones of her family that are buried in a foreign land. This is just devastating. And as she's looking forward to the future, she sees these two women, and she, in their culture, it was like her responsibility to make sure that they could have husbands and that these husbands would be part of the family so that they could raise up children in the place of the dead. Because these people were so bound together with their land that God had given to them by promise that you weren't allowed to just marry whoever and have all the land change hands and go into different places. You had to kind of marry in such a way that the land would be handed down from one generation to the next and stay in the family because God gave the families this land and you couldn't lose it. And so it wasn't just there were some kind of parameters where um, Naomi could go on like christianmingle.com and click on the ones like you're okay with the widow and from another country and just set it up like that it had to be in the family and she's saying i'm i'm too old to marry and even if i got married today and had twins are you going to wait around for 18 years before they're old enough to get married to you and you're pushing or past 40 he says if you come home with me you're saying i'm going to be a widow because i can't fix this This is what Naomi's feeling. I can't fix this. I can't fix this. And so even you just being around here makes everything worse. Please just go home. You being here just reminds me how God has devastated me. And I can't fix this. And I can't help you. Please go home. And so she tries nicely the first time. And they say, no, we'll go with you. And she tries very firmly the second time. And Orpah goes home. And then she tries again with Ruth. And and Ruth won't have it. And so Naomi quits. I, I kind of entitle scene one, the train wreck. And that's the end of scene one. They end up back in Bethlehem and, and Naomi is so devastated and the, the years have been so bad that when she gets back home, the people don't even recognize her. They go, is this Naomi? Where did all these wrinkles come from? Where did all this, like, she looks, she looks brutal because it has been a brutal time. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. God, God's, God doesn't like me. God hates me. He struck me. I'm not happy. I'm bitter. End of scene one. Scene two. Um, what we would call this one, maybe field work. So it starts like this, and it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight i find favor and she said to her go my daughter so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened ooh, she happened ooh, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to boaz who was of the clan of elimelech so scene two all takes place in harvest fields and essentially what happens is in the ancient israelite times they had this really great welfare system and this is how it worked god commanded people he said don't try too hard when you harvest your grains this is what he said to them when you go out to get your harvest i'm going to take care of you so don't don't fuss about it don't try too hard and what i want you to do is don't go to the edges of your field you just leave that and when you go to harvest a field or get your grapes don't go over it twice if you forget something just leave it and what this allows is that when people are really hard up and they're hungry and they need some food they can actually just go to a field and even after harvest they know that there'll be something there that they can work for and collect and gather and one of the brilliant things about this is that it lets every israelite who's doing well do something to help people who aren't in such a way that the people who aren't doing well actually have the self-respect of going out and earning their bread because they actually went and worked for it 
right? So Ruth actually gets to go and work hard for her mother-in-law and come home having done something in a way that doesn't just feel like a handout necessarily. And so this is, but the amazing thing is that the great thing about this scene is that Boaz is doing this. Okay, this is part of the thing. Boaz is not just taking every grain to himself and driving off the poor people. He is obeying God by faith and leaving the stuff behind. And so when Ruth shows up by accident, again, by accident, by accident, quote unquote, scare quotes, by accident, she just happens to stumble into the field of the most honorable man in Bethlehem at that time and one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And Boaz shows up and he's blessing people and they're blessing him back and everybody's talking about the Lord. And he wonders, okay, who's this lady gleaning? finds out that it's Ruth and he calls her over and says, Ruth, I've heard all that you've done for Naomi. Okay, because word travels fast. You don't actually need to be on WhatsApp to know what's going on in your town. That's what this story teaches us. Words travel fast. He said, Ruth, I've heard everything you've done for Naomi, how you've honored her and cared for her, and you're showing kindness even to the dead, even to Naomi's husband who died in Moab and to your your ex or your dead husband, you're being faithful to them both by taking care of Naomi. And so he sets up this plan. He says, don't go anywhere else. I don't want to hear about you getting hurt in some other field by somebody who's going to treat you bad. You stay here. If you get thirsty, you can drink out of my water. I'm going to command the young women to, to, to be kind to you. The young men are going to leave you alone. And uh, you can even eat a meal with us. And he, he's so generous with the meal that she has tons of leftovers to even go and take back to, to Naomi. And he even, because Boaz is like a, he's just a generous heart. This is part of his righteousness, is that he's, he wants to go even beyond what God requires. So he says to his workers, sorry, I just love this. He's like, hey guys, make sure you screw up a lot when you're gathering the grain. Not only don't try too hard to get it all, but every once in a while, just pull some stuff out of the sheaves around Ruth so she can find it. Don't tell her. He's just, he's a great guy. And he wants to honor her honorability. He wants to be generous with her for her faithfulness to Naomi. And that's how it ends. And it says that Naomi gleaned in Boaz's field until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. End of scene two, field work. Start of scene three, a night at the heap. Or whatever you might want to call it. I just made that up right there. (laughs) Beginning of... Scene three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So Naomi's starting to see that actually something good is happening here. And her, her hope and her faith is starting to be restored. And so she, she wants to get involved here. And she said, is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Excuse me. So Naomi's playing matchmaker and rightly so. Ruth replies, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, just underline that, you'll need that for later, which kind of means that Boaz was in a place where he shouldn't drive home at night. He had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. He did the responsible thing and just laid down and went to sleep where he was. It says, he went and lay down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, excuse me. And behold, a woman laid at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings with the corner of your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Notice him making her a family member with his speech. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, and I will do all that you ask. Notice Boaz saying to Ruth the same thing Ruth said to Naomi. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Tonight remain, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not... If he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, 
Notice Boaz taking an oath by the Lord the same way that Ruth did for Naomi. I will redeem you and lie down until, sorry, lie down till the morning. So you've got this really interesting scene here where Naomi's playing matchmaker and he says to Ruth, um, get yourself did. You did up nice, you know, just like take a bath and anoint yourself so you smell nice and then sneak down to the pile of wheat in the middle of the night. And this is a really huge risk, okay? Because you can just kind of imagine that in some times when things are bad, when people are having a harvest and they've got lots of grain and people are drinking, that there might be a kind of woman that hovers around these kinds of activities for not a noble purpose and might be trying to crawl up to men in the middle of the night not for a noble purpose. And so this is a big risk for Ruth, that she would do this. And she's really depending on the Lord's kindness and Boaz's good response just to even take this risk because she's got this great reputation that she is taking in her hands and could be destroyed that night. And she goes and she she waits for Boaz to wake up. And you don't know, like, and the man was startled in the night. Yeah, because Ruth pinched him. You know, you kind of wonder what startled him. Maybe she kicked him. She's like, I've been here three hours. Oh, 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 you're awake. Um, not that anybody ever does that, right? And uh, you were snoring. Um, and she says to him, she, she says, who are you? So it's pitch black. He doesn't know what's going on. Um, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, which echoes something that Boaz said before. And he says, for you are a redeemer. That's a technical term. You're in the family enough to marry me so that if I have a child, it will be a child in the family that can inherit our property. That's what that word means. You're a redeemer. Not you're a stud muffin, but you're, you're capable of fulfilling God's law that somebody needs to marry me so that I can have a child in Naomi's family. And that's why when Boaz says, um, may you be blessed by the Lord, you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. I don't think Boaz is saying, you're being kind to me because I'm an old dude and you still want to marry me even though I got the wrinkles or whatever it is. What he's saying is like, your first kindness was to come home with Naomi with the promise that I will take care of you and nothing will separate me from you. And this second kindness is he's saying, you haven't just gone after somebody who you think will be a good husband. You want to have a baby for Naomi. That's what's going on. He's saying, when you say, marry me, Boaz, he hears saying, I want to take care of Naomi by having a baby who will be hers, who will be her redeemer, who will make sure that her property is not lost, but will go from generation to generation. And Elimelech's name will not be lost because my child will be Naomi's child and his family will be preserved in Israel by you giving me a child. And so when he hears her say that, he says, you are an amazing woman because you are not here for yourself. You're here for Naomi again. That's why it means you didn't go after somebody rich or poor, old or young. You went after someone who can save Naomi. And he responds, and this is, I love Boaz. He responds, it's like the middle of the night. (laughs) He's been drinking. There's this young woman at his feet nobody's around and what's his thought he's thinking if we're going to do this there's actually one more person who's in the way he's like technical (laughs) getting his lawyer on and his administrative apostolic gift is working here and he's like there's actually somebody there's another roadblock is there's a person who's closer to me so that if we're going to do this right this person actually needs to bow out first and if he doesn't bow out then god bless him and he'll take care of you but if he won't do it i will marry you and he's like and i will settle this tomorrow Like, you'll know how this is going down before dinner. And then he's so generous that he says, you know, he says, you got to lie down. You're going to go home before the sun's up, but not right now. And he says, you can't go home empty-handed, so let me give you a gift for your mother-in-law. And he pours out for her six measures or sayas of wheat, which my Bible guys tell me is somewhere between 55 and 95 pounds. So up to 95 pounds of barley, he puts in her shawl and sends her home. He cannot give. And this is something about Ruth that she managed to ninja home up to 95 pounds of barley in the dark. 
without anybody noticing that she'd been at the threshing floor. Like, just carrying 95 pounds, up to 95 pounds of wheat is hard. But she did it in the dark without anybody seeing her. And just, do you see Boaz wanting to care for her reputation? I don't want anybody to see you. He's protecting her. And don't go home empty to your mom. I'm going to give you guys like five weeks worth of food. (laughs) And I'm told that it's when you're going from like the the field up to Bethlehem, it's an uphill climb. So, welcome to Ruth. End of scene three. A night at the heap. Enter scene four. Boaz gets it done. So Boaz wakes up in the morning and he heads out to the city gate, which is kind of like city hall where all the legal stuff is done. And he gathers together at least 10 um, elders of the city so that there's a witness. So whatever happens here is legally binding. He's making, he's crossing his T's and dotting his I's. And he waits for this guy who's the nearer kinsman that scripture doesn't actually name. They just call him Poloni Elmoni, which is this word that Hebrew uses when they don't really care what to say. It's like our such and such or whatever, or whatchamacallit, or what's his face yet. So a good translation would have been, and Boaz said to What's-His-Face, come over here, my friend, but he calls him Polonial Moni, and ESV is just his friend, which is an under-translation. And I just really like the phrase Polonial Moni, and I think everyone should adopt it into their families and use it all the time. Mom, that dinner looks like Polonial Moni. That will get you in trouble. But uh, you can just use it. What do you want to do tonight? Ah, Polonial Moni, just whatever. And he finds this guy and he calls him over. And this is a setup because Boaz actually wants Ruth. And so he works some kind of like selling psychology on him, on this guy here. So he says, hey, uh, Naomi wants to sell a field. And if you want to, you can redeem it because you're nearer redeemer than I am. And the guy says, yeah, great. Let's get that field. Love my fields. Fields, fields, fields. Get some fields. Make some barn. Get some oats. Fields, fields. And he says, get the field. And he says, oh, but just by the way, before we make this all official, when you buy this field, you also get Ruth, the Moabitess, with her, and you have to give her a child so that she, that child can be the official inheritor of that field you're buying. And so the guy goes, oh, maybe I won't do this because it might jeopardize my own inheritance. And so how I understand this would have worked, when someone was acting as a redeemer, buying a field that comes with a wife that you have to get a child, is it would be like somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, do you want to buy this house that Naomi's selling for cheap? Yeah, I'll buy that house. The only thing is, is that um, you have to let Ruth live in it rent-free and give her a child. And when that child is old enough, he gets that house for free because it's his house. You're actually redeeming it for his sake so that he can own that house. I that's how I understand it's working. So this is just all loss for Boaz. He's going to buy a field that will belong to the child that he gives to Ruth, which will be adopted by Naomi so that they can keep this field. So Ruth is, <laughs> Boaz is essentially just going to be giving <laughs> Naomi the price of a field so that his child, which is actually Naomi's child, can own that field. Does that make sense? So it's all loss. For Boaz, this is all loss. This is all loss. It's all just money down the... money. It's dollar bills into the wood chipper. It's just all gone. Except that he's doing God's will. He's doing the word of God. God commanded this to be done. And so Boaz is on it. Like, it's not even past breakfast. And he's on this thing. And so he sets this guy up, and Polonial Moni decides not to go for it. And Scripture does not honor Polonial Moni by not even mentioning his name. And then Boaz says to everybody, You are witness this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech. See, it's about her dead husband too. And all that belongs to Chilion and Malon and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Do you hear that? He's saying, I'm buying her in order so that her children will have this inheritance. Boaz isn't getting nothing out of this except for the honor of being married to Ruth. And he also gets um, a leading role in a book of the Bible. But he didn't know that. You are witness this day. 
verse 11 of chapter 4, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, You are witness, or sorry, we are witness. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women, sorry, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. Just think about how Naomi was talking about herself at the end of chapter one. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and he's given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, which is a picture of her adopting officially this child as her own descendant, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. End of chapter, end of book. Do you get it? Three amazing things from this book, to me at least. Number one, a testimony of God's kind hand being with people who show hesed. You don't have to know a lot of Hebrew to be a Christian. Uh, Polonial Moni should be in there somewhere. <laughs> Just because it's the funniest one. Baloney what? Yeah, no, Poloni. Um, but if you're going to know one Hebrew word, it should be the word chesed, which means something like covenant faithfulness or covenant love or helping the help, helpless by, by uh, divine promise. Uh, when you read a psalm that like, I can't remember Psalm 100 and something or other where it says, for the Lord's love endures forever or his steadfast love endures forever in it. That is the word hesed. His hesed is forever. His hesed is forever, which means that he made a promise to Israel and even when Israel blows it, he's going to find a way to be faithful to Israel. He keeps his promises in love. His hesed. And, and Ruth is a woman of hesed. She makes a promise to Naomi. Um, the only thing that's going to separate us from death from each other is death, and even in that, I'm going to be buried beside you. That's outrageous hesed. She's saying, like, even if you die 30 years before me, I'm going to stay in Bethlehem <laughs> with my plot pre-purchased right beside you. Like, I'm not leaving. It's a story of hesed. And Boaz is a man of hesed who sees an opportunity to show hesed to um, Elimelech, by taking care of Ruth, and sees an opportunity to show Hesed to Elimelech and Naomi by redeeming Ruth and the property and giving them a child. And so this is a story about Hesed, and it's a story about God's Hesed towards Naomi, this, this woman who lost everything and became broke and broken, so much to the point where she just said, call me Mara because God hates me. And before the book is over, God has given her the grandfather of King David, to be her child. So it's a, it's a book of Hesed. And one of the crazy things about this book is that it doesn't actually have God talking to anybody or anybody talking to God in this book. There's no prophetic word and there's no prayer. It's weird. I notice this. I'm reading this. It's like, nobody, nobody prays in this here book. What's up with that? That's one of the best questions that any student of the Bible can have on their lips. What is up with that? And it strikes me because this is the time of the judges, and God did still, at this time, he was sending angels sometimes, he would send prophets sometimes, there was divine revelation, there was the, the voice of God being heard. God doesn't talk to anybody in this book. And usually in a book, prayer is a sign of faith. In Genesis, whenever somebody starts praying, that's a sign of faith. But there's no prayer, and there's no prophetic word. What is going on? And I think what's going on is this. Like, people talk about the Lord, but nobody talks to the Lord. And I think what's going on is this. The, the author of this book, the Holy Spirit, the prophet who wrote this book, wants to emphasize that God rules over the life of people who want to show covenant faithfulness because of faith in him. 
It's like, not, I, don't, I think they did pray, but God's like, I, don't, I didn't even need them to. Because as soon as Ruth said to Naomi, I'm not leaving you, God's like, I'm not leaving you. I think that's what, what the theology is here. As soon as Ruth said to Naomi, I will take care of you till I die, God said to Ruth, I will take care of you till I die. And I never die. So I think that's the point. Why is there no prophetic word? Why is there no... People are showing hesed and God is showing hesed. People are showing loyalty and God is showing loyalty. Even to the point of when Ruth is like in some hut with Naomi and Naomi's so depressed she can't even get out of bed and she's like, I think we need to eat so why don't I go glean and try to find something? I'm going to just wander around Bethlehem. I've never been here before. And she just happens to stumble into Boaz's field. And Boaz just happens to show up while Ruth is doing this. Because apparently he wasn't always there. Because the just happens to are under the sovereign hand of God. Something else that strikes me, and I didn't make all this stuff up. I've read a few things, and everyone's smarter than me, but I remember a lot of stuff people write and say. It's just how deep the redemption is in this story. This story is about redemption. This story is about doing things to purchase people back from destruction and purchase people back from loss and death and rescue people at a cost. That's what the story is about. It's about, like, legally, this is about Boaz paying all the money to have Ruth as his wife so that Naomi can be rescued from her widowhood and having no offspring. That's legally the heart of it. And he buys it back. He redempts it. He redeems it. He makes it better by getting involved at his own cost. And so this story is about Naomi's redemption. But there's a lot going on here bigger than this. And I want to just take some time, and I hope I don't lose anybody, to try to point out how deep God's power for bringing redemption is as displayed in this book. And it has to do with, do you remember I read that when Boaz says he's going to redeem Ruth, the people start singing this song of blessing over them. It's this chiastic poem, if anybody likes these things. May the Lord bless the woman and make her like Rachel and Leah in Israel, and may you act worthily, and may your house become like Perez, that Tamar bore to Judah, through the Lord who's going to bless this woman. Woman, woman, Lord, Lord. Patriarch, patriarch, you guys acting honorably. That's how this poem is written. But it's just weird. Because um, they're taking Rachel and Leah and making them a blessing. And they're taking Perez and Tamar and making her a blessing. And uh, most people wouldn't read those stories and think, I I want that to be my story. And it all has to do with scenes revolving around darkness or not being able to see and people trying to have babies, okay? Ruth and Boaz at the bottom of the heap in the night forming a plan to get a baby, right? Rachel and Leah, you remember their story? Jacob is in love with Rachel. He's worked seven years for Laban. To, to have Rachel as his wife because it, you, it costs money. There's a bride price. You've got to take care of them. And, and on the wedding night, when you know Jacob's been celebrating with the old wineskin, he has the, the vows with Rachel, but when he goes into the nuptial chamber to make it official, 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 it's not Rachel in there. And Laban's pulled a switcheroo. And man, that must have just been the worst night ever for Rachel. Can you imagine just right before you go into the honeymoon suite, your dad comes and grabs you and throws your sister in there instead. And Jacob wakes up in the morning and he sees that it's Leah. And culture shock, he doesn't just get rid of her. He actually says, okay, we're married and it's terrible and I want Rachel too and it's terrible, but... In the middle of the night, with a little bit of drinking, the wrong connection happened in a bad way. But Leah's fourth son is Judah, one of Boaz's ancestors. What happened with Judah and Tamar? This other blessing that no one would ever think would be. After Judah got his brother Joseph sold into slavery as in a way to try to kill him. 
He started to feel guilty about it, and he decided, I don't want to live with my dad and just watch him mourning because he thinks Joseph's dead by a wild animal when I'm actually the one who engineered the idea to get him sold into slavery. That would be hard to live with. Anybody? Somebody? Nobody? So he decides to leave home, and he goes and just lives with a bunch of um, unbelievers, Canaanites, and he marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he has three sons by her. And when his oldest son is old enough to get married, he arranges for Tamar to become his wife. But God doesn't like this eldest son, and so he kills him. And so Tamar wants to do, or are they going to work this whole thing about somebody coming and giving a child for Tamar so that she can perpetuate the name of her dead husband? So she marries the second second son. But he doesn't want to do that. And so whenever they're going to do the, the do, he spills his seed so that she won't get pregnant. He's, the, he's an anti-Boaz. And so God kills him too. And Judah doesn't realize that his sons are the problem. He thinks that Tamar's the problem. So he sends Tamar home saying, oh, I'll give you my third son when he's old enough, but he doesn't want to because he thinks that Tamar's cursed or dangerous or something like that. Tamar figures out that she's never going to get a husband. She's never going to get a son. She's never going to get to fulfill this cultural thing of maintaining the, the children of her family. And so she, during not a wheat harvest or a barley harvest, but during the sheep shearing harvest, Judah's going to go up. His wife has died. He's going to go up to the shearers and she poses as a prostitute. And he's feeling lonely and lusty because his wife's been dead for a bit. And so he proposes that he spend some time with this prostitute and she's hidden herself. So it's not the middle of the night, but her, her identity is still disguised. And they lay together and she becomes pregnant. And, and then Judah goes home and was going to like pay her and... They can't find her, and she's got his staff in his his signature role. And then when they find out that Tamar is pregnant, Judah says, okay, well, we got to kill her because she's been playing the whore, kind of like Boaz didn't want people to think about Ruth. Right? Her life was on the line. And then Tamar says, actually, the, the father of these children is the owner of your stuff. It's essentially what she says. And Judah goes, oh man, I, she's more righteous than I. And, and if you read Genesis closely, you'll see that that moment with Tamar actually turned Judah from being the wanting his brother to die for his own sake kind of guy to being willing to sacrifice himself to save Benjamin later on because of what Tamar did. But not a great scene, but another scene, babies in the dark with bad stuff going on with drinking and partying sometimes one more scenario like this. Okay, Ruth is a what? This is the interaction portion. I know second service, but you can do it. Ruth is a what? Okay, so she's a descendant from Moab. Do you remember where Moab came from? Okay, Lot was living in Sodom. And God came to destroy Sodom because of its sin. And Lot got out with his family. His wife turned to a pillar of salt because she wished Sodom wasn't being destroyed. She looked back. And so Lot is so afraid to live in a city, in case this happens again, that he's living in a cave with his two daughters, and his two daughters want kids. Another scenario where women are feeling like they're being deprived of their children. And so what they do, they decide to do. They get the wine, they get him drunk in the night, and they get pregnant from their dad. Moab in Hebrew means from the father. His name means the daughter said, I got this kid from my dad. I'm going to name him my dad. And so Ruth the Moabitess is carrying around the shame of this like incestuous insemination. Her whole people group. Whenever Israelites think of Moabites, they're like, oh, it's a Moabite. (laughs) Serious. And I keep repeating it. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Okay, so we have all these scenes of women getting pregnant in terrible ways. And the redeeming God takes a daughter of Moab and a son of Leah and a son of Judah. And he puts them in the same situation that all of their parents blew it in or had at least nastiness in. And they do great Ruth is not there for a child. She's there to bless her mother-in-law. Moab is not there for sex. He's there to bless his dead relative. 
And so even though all the hormones could be in the room, all they're planning is how to do this in the way that will most please the Lord and save Naomi. The story about Lot was like 500 years ago from this scene. The story about Leah was like 450 years ago. The story about Judah was like 400 years ago. God is tying up loose ends in redemption for things that have been going wrong for 400 years at least. And I just kind of feel like not only is it beautiful, but God's showing off a little bit. God can be working on something for 500 years and bring a Ruth and a Boaz together and be like, They're redeemed. So that saying, I hope you're like Leah can be a blessing now. And I hope you're like Tamar can be a blessing now. And I, I hope you be like a Ruth, the Moabitess, can be a blessing now because of the character and the hesed and the sovereignty of God over these people's lives. That's amazing. I've been crying about this all week. Because the same God who can pull this off is in control of your life if you're in Jesus. We can have crap in our lives that God redeems 300 years from now. And at the end, he'll say, look what I did. I love you. That was terrible. One of your descendants, I fixed it. Like what an honor for Lot, who is a total mess, to have Ruth as his daughter. One of the greatest women of all time. Total grace. I'm just amazed. Sorry. This, another thing that just blows my mind about this story is how this all interweaves. Excuse me, got a bit of cold. With just the entire point of the Bible in general. Um, And this is what I mean by this. This story helps answer the question, who is the seed of the woman? Which is a question nobody's been asking, but it's the biggest question in the Old Testament. You remember God takes a chapter to make everything. He takes another chapter to put a man and a woman in the garden in in a good relationship. And in chapter three, the snake comes and tempts the woman and she she takes the fruit, she falls for the deception, she takes the fruit, she gives some to her husband, and they eat it, and they come under the wrath of God, and they're exiled. But when God is talking to the serpent, and he's declaring the punishments for their disobedience and their lack of hesed, okay, this is their thing. What was the problem in the garden? God made a covenant, if you obey my law, you'll live forever, and all they needed to do was show hesed, a covenant faithfulness to the Lord, and they... They did the one thing they could do to break Hesed with God. And when God is declaring the, the consequences because of this, he turns to the serpent, he turns to the liar, he turns to Satan, and he says to him, I'm going to put enmity, so I'm going to make war between you and the offspring of the woman, and I'm going to, um, and they're going to be fighting, and one of the seeds of the woman is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And so there's this declaration over the serpent that God's revenge is going to be to take one of Eve's daughters and out of one of his daughters is going to make a seed who is going to crush the serpent. It's God's revenge. I call it Eve's revenge. Who is the serpent? God, God by grace is going to give Eve the revenge in this and the victory in this. But the, the question of the whole Old Testament is who is this seed? Genesis, who's the seed? Exodus, who is the seed? Leviticus through Deuteronomy, who is the seed who's going to crush the serpent? Because it sure looks like the serpent's winning a lot. All the story of all the kings. Who is this seed? They're waiting for one of these Davidic Who is this seed who's going to show up and finally defeat the enemy who has caused all this death, that caused all this destruction? The whole Old Testament, the whole point of the Old Testament, 39 books. The question is, who is the seed of the woman who's going to crush this serpent? And do you know what the whole point of the New Testament is? Here is the seed. Here's the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. That's the the Old Testament. Who is the seed? The New Testament. Here he is. 
This whole thing, God promised he's going to destroy the serpent and all his works through someone who would get crushed in order to destroy the serpent's head. Okay. Ruth's honor for being a woman of Hesed is to be joined to Boaz. And Boaz's honor for taking Ruth as his wife at only personal cost is that God chose for them to have a son who was going to be David's grandpa. David, the greatest king of Israel, who is a serpent killer. And then God gave this promise to David saying, one of your children will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Which is kind of impossible if you think about it. Unless that person can live forever. And so God came down as a descendant of David to be the true king of Israel. And in his son, the son of David, goes to the cross and literally has his, his feet crushed with Roman nails against that wood and dies for sin, dies under the wrath of God in order to crush the serpent and disarm him and to rise from the dead to bring new life, to make new creations everywhere. And we kind of get it because we're Christians and you have to know this, you've been to Sunday school, but Jesus is the seed of the, the, the seed of the woman who destroys the serpent. And the story of Ruth starts telling us what kind of, of woman is included in the genealogy of this seed. And what kind of man gives the seed to the woman? And in one sense, when you look at this, this is just like Boaz, Boaz and Ruth are like the anti-Adam and Eve. They're, they're the opposite of Eve. When the serpent came to Eve, in the middle of paradise, like some people have spent thousands of dollars this year to go to a country that isn't even as close to as good as Eden was. Because you still have to pay for the fruit and then you get diarrhea. <laughs> but she's in paradise and she is the image of God and the serpent comes and says, this isn't enough. God is holding back on you. You need to think about yourself. Eat this fruit so you can be like God. And the whole story of Ruth is people saying to Ruth, you should think about yourself, and Ruth saying no. They're walking back to Judah. Naomi's just this broken old woman with nothing. She probably spent all her money on these weddings that her husband's died without getting any grandchildren. You got no money, no husbands, no hope, and she keeps saying to Ruth, go home. Go home. Go home. There's three times, kind of like when Jesus was tempted three times in the desert. There's like three times in the desert as they walk home to Bethlehem where Naomi in her helplessness is saying, just go home. Don't have faith in my God and don't do hesed to me. Go home. Take care of yourself. Get a husband somewhere else. Take, go back to your mother's house. Just take care of yourself. And Ruth is like, no, no, no. I refuse to let this be about me. And kind of like how Eve was underneath a covenant in the, new, in the garden where God said, don't eat this and live forever. Do eat it and die. Ruth herself says, may the Lord strike me if I'm not faithful to you. Two women under covenant. She's the anti-Eve. She takes the covenant of death upon herself. If I forsake you, may the Lord strike me dead and I'm not going to do it. Do you see? She's, she's the opposite of what went wrong. And Boaz is the anti-Adam because he is so particular about obeying God's law from the heart. It would have been so easy just to say, yeah, sure, I'll redeem you. I'm number two. And the other guy's a doof. So let's just do this. But even when she's right there in the middle of the night, she smells good because Naomi said, put, your, put on the good perfume. You know? <laughs> He's like, if we're going to do this, we've got to do this in the way that will most obey God's word. We need to go and deal with this closer redeemer first. He's the anti-Adam. And for him to have this woman is all loss and all sacrifice. It's not even his own kid. He's, this is like the opposite. 
And God's saying, this is, this is what it looks like when the serpent is getting his head crushed. This is what it looks like. And then, ah, second service. First service, I would stop it right now, but second service, I have all the time in the world. When Jesus comes, he comes to a woman named Mary, who, who gets to be Ruth again. And, and the angel comes to her and says, okay, Mary, you got these plans. You're engaged to get married. I'm here to destroy your life because I want you to get pregnant from not your husband. Everyone's going to think you're a, you're a Tamar, but without the good intentions. And Mary's like, okay, God, whatever you want. Sounds a lot like Ruth talking to Naomi. Whatever you say, I'll do. I'll do all that you've commanded me. Mary says to the angel who's saying, all your plans are shot. You're going to look like a prostitute and it's just going to be trouble. Okay, God. And Joseph, being, being a, a Boaz himself, wants to be a faithful husband, finds out that his uh, engaged bride is pregnant, not by him. And the word of God says that he's a righteous man, so he's going to divorce her quietly. So he doesn't want to destroy her life. Like something bad's happened, but he wants to be righteous in it. He wants to care for this woman who's obviously now in a bad situation. But he can't get married to her. And the angel comes to her and says, comes to him and says, actually, I want you to marry, uh, marry Mary and take care of the child who's not your son. Because this is from the Lord. It's not from sin. And so Joseph is a Boaz. He raises up a son who is not his own, who is going to get an inheritance who is not his own. Joseph's name is actually going to be almost forgotten. Like who even thinks that Jesus is Joseph's son ever? Almost never, except for Christmas time when we go back to that story. Joseph's fatherhood was, is totally sacrificed. Just like Boaz's fatherhood is totally sacrificed. And, and, and God's just waving his hands. This is what it looks like me for destroy Satan. It wasn't about Ruth. It wasn't about Boaz. It wasn't about Mary. It wasn't about Joseph. And all these people saying yes to the word and will of God in the midst of this stuff. And they ultimately bring forth a son who was willing to go to the cross for the will of God because it wasn't about himself. And amen. Okay. The band can get start to get ready to begin to get up to think about possibly starting to sing together sometime in the future unknown when exactly that might be two things for us number one I, I want to just tell you today Jesus Christ is the most hesed person ever He does steadfast, loving loyalty like not even Ruth came close to. If you give your life to Jesus, he takes care of us without thinking about himself. He works for us in our weakness. He cares for us in our calamity. He prays for us in our pain. He upholds us in our helplessness. He says to us, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you stop, I stop. Where you lie down, I lie down. Where you lodge, I am lodging. And not even death itself will separate us. He is Captain Hesed. And so church, let's just worship the loyalty of Jesus Christ. We stand before him every day like Naomi going, I cannot give you one reason to stay here. Broken, broken. I cannot give you one reason to stay, Jesus. And Jesus says, shut up, because I'm not going anywhere. Now let's go to Bethlehem so I can start gleaning some food for you. And I'll give you hope, and I'll take care of you. And I have powers to redeem your fallenness that stretch generations and centuries with complete perfection, tying up every loose end that anybody has left in history, whatever I want to. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And I know that today all of us have that part of us that's the Naomi just saying, too much, not enough, leave me alone. And Jesus is just like, I do have it. 
Why don't we just worship him? Why don't we see him displayed in the kindness of Ruth? Amen? Yeah, let's just go from there. Father, would you come? Father, that you would just work through history so well that just this, these people who were nothing nobodies that we would have been totally forgotten except that your spirit inspired a book. But you were so involved in their lives. And God, here we are. We can say we're nothing nobodies. And we could have catastrophes that feel like all of our relatives have died in a famine and we got nothing. Jesus, raise up our hope to your steadfast covenant love. I pray, Lord, even now that you would help us dislodge everything that we have that would want to argue with you. And instead, we would just just fall into you. Just fall into you afresh. And Jesus, I I pray, I, I want you to show off the glory of your gracious kindness to your church. Father, Calvary Chapel will never do anything to put you in our debt. But Father, by grace, if you would choose us like a Ruth and just say, I want to show off my grace in you. I'd really like that. Amen.